Father, we do thank you again for your redeeming love. Thank you for bringing us together here this morning with the privilege that we have to meet freely and publicly, to sit under the proclamation of your word, to worship you through your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, that your name may be hallowed on earth as it is in heaven. That your word may be magnified. That you have chosen to condescend to meet us in a way that we can understand. To meet us through word, through the oracles of you, almighty God, for we are a privileged people. And may we see the text before us this morning with clarity, with great understanding. Give us ears to hear. Hearts that understand and embrace this truth. Personally individually and corporately as a body, that the name of our Savior might be exalted in us and through us. Minister to us now, Holy Spirit, we pray. Enable me to communicate the divine truth before us in the power of your Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we continue to worship the Lord, it's now time for the exposition of his word. And if you would, open your Bibles to Romans, the third chapter. If you're visiting with us, we have been studying the book of Romans for a number of weeks now. And we come now to verse 9, and we'll be looking at verses 9 through 20. But again, to kind of set the stage and to refresh our minds, as I'll be providing a little bit of review this morning, I want to begin by reading the beginning of the chapter down and through verse 20. So if you would, beloved, stand as we read the Word of God. The Word of God reads, Then what advantage has the Jew... Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat? is an open grave. The use, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace, they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is God's word to God's people, and you may be seated. It's very important, beloved, that we understand that Paul's literary style here comes in the form 
And I think you could hear this in the language as it was being read. It comes in the form of a, leg- of a legal argument. The language is judicial. This is courtroom language. This is a trial. And in this trial, we're witnessing the arraignment of all mankind. We witness an indictment against all mankind. And this morning, Paul will conclude with the verdict of all mankind. So keep in mind, as we look through this together this morning, um, a courtroom scenario. And it's important that I do some review because next week we come to a great transition in the book of Romans. And that is grace through faith alone. No one will be saved any other way than but by the grace of God through his son, Jesus Christ, alone. No, there are not many ways that lead to God. God is not a hub, and Jesus is one of those spokes. He's the way. He's the truth. He is the life. No one comes to the Father except through the Son, and there is but one beloved Son who is forsaken only for those who believe. Amen. So, Paul up to this point, has been systematically showing us how all men are sinners. Dealing a death blow to the obvious, outright, and unashamed sinners of Romans chapter 1, they're revealed as the openly immoral, the idolatrous of the world, and proud of it. And then he exposes the moral conservative. Those who fold their hands and they look at the evil actions and behaviors of those in the pagan culture, and they think themselves to be okay because they're good, because of their conservative lifestyle, who show disgust for the unashamed reprobates of the world. And then Paul goes on and he attacks the religiously orthodox who lean on their heritage, who lean on their religious upbringing, depending upon certain ceremonial signs and their assurance of being right with God as though because of those signs and because of their association that they're in. So Paul now is categorically destroying any and all claims of righteousness, any and all claims of religiousness that allows man to stand before God without blame. That's where he is. He's exposing everyone as blameworthy. Everyone is utterly guilty, therefore deserving God's wrath. Aren't you glad that we're almost at the good news? I told you there's no good news till chapter 3. And you'll never appreciate the salvation for which God has granted you unless you understand what you've been delivered from. Now, is Paul category categorically destroys any and all claims of righteousness, um, we know that that is not a popular message in our day. Amen? It's not popular in the world, and it's not even accepted in many churches, beloved. Why? Well, because 2 Timothy 4 tells us they refuse to endure sound teaching. They have itching ears, so they accumulate for themselves their own teachers to suit their own passions, turning away from listening to the truth. Now, we really don't believe that we truly have no goodness in and of ourselves. We think, outside of faith in Christ, that we have some good in us. Not true. But, nevertheless, deep down, every man and woman knows that he or she is indeed a sinner. We're inherently aware that we have rebelled against and broken the law of God. As every man's conscience bears witness to the nature of of his crime. Remember chapter 2 and verse 15? They show that the works of the law written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Everyone has a conscience. And everyone knows deep down that they're not right with God. Now, that pain of conscience is something too great to bear. And so often, human beings expend all kinds of energy and all kinds of excuses to rid themselves of this invasive attack known as guilt. 
we fight it and we resist it with prideful arrogance, with stubborn resilience. We blame other people for our sin. We blame it on our upbringing. We blame it on our parents, our relatives, or we call it a disease. Sin is now a disease that comes in a bottle or it comes in a baggie. And blame has been the name of the game since the fall of man. Remember, Eve blamed who? The serpent. Adam blamed Eve. And then Adam went so far as to blame God. It's the woman that you gave me. It's because of her that I ate. Is this not us? Come on. Now, as Paul persisted here to prove that even religious people, the most religious of the day, were in the same condition as all other people, he makes specific reverence, uh, reference rather, to their covenant sign, the sign of circumcision, the sign of belonging to the covenant people of God. And he defines in there, in these few, few, few first verses of uh, chapter 3, there's a tongue twister, that they have just denied the God that declares all are under sin and that they are in much need for the grace of God as are the outwardly unrighteous of chapter 1. They're all guilty. So in response, Paul's literary opponent, that imaginary opponent, as, as we see that there's an argument going on here in this courtroom kind of session, attempts to blame God for the unbelief of the religious Jews. So seeing as Paul has explained the fact that even though God has chosen them out of all other nations, he did not promise with, within the covenant people that being part of these people in and of itself guarantees them eternal life. That's wrong thinking. Now, he's going to go on in greater detail in chapters 9 through 11 in explaining the doctrine of individual election. But nevertheless, at this point, he's made clear, trusting in your heritage, trusting in your ethnicity, trusting in these covenant signs, being raised in the synagogue is a mark of eternal security in and of itself, apart from faith, is a delusion. And it's just as deceptive, beloved, to think that one born in a Christian family is the guaranteed elect of God. So in response to Paul's indictment against false security of signs and ceremonies, we came into contact with four objections, which we looked at last time. So let's buzz over this quickly. First, someone says, well, Paul, in chapter 3 and verse 1, what if, if what you're saying is true, what advantage is it then of being a Jew, of having these signs and having this covenant? What's the advantage? Paul says there's a wonderful advantage. You've been given the very oracles of God. You're the church folk who are privileged to come and sit under the divine words of Almighty God. You have all these signs, but if those signs aren't coupled with faith, they're meaningless. It's true to this day, is it not? As long as one is trusting in the promise of the promise maker, then he's okay with God. But those signs mean nothing in and of themselves because signs always point to something greater than themselves. I've used the illustration before. If we get in a car together and leave for Los Angeles and we pull over on Interstate 5 somewhere where a sign that says Los Angeles and we embrace the sign or we have a picnic underneath the sign and we say, hey, what are you guys doing? Oh, we're having a picnic in Los Angeles. No, you're not. You're a fool. That's the sign that points you to Los Angeles. You're not in Los Angeles. Secondly, we saw the objection, well then, if so many of God's covenant people in Israel have rejected the Messiah, they've fallen away into unbelief, doesn't that call into question God's covenantal promise? Isn't his faithfulness now called into question? We see that in verse 3. Paul responds, by no means, absolutely not, because God can be faithful in two ways, beloved. He can be faithful to bless when we embrace the promises and the persons to which the person to which the signs point, and he can be faithful to judge when we ignore, when we reject, or we presume upon those promises. Either way, God is what? Faithful. 
He is faithful to maintain his covenant in mercy and to maintain it in judgment. Paul says God's not unfaithful. He's always faithful. It's a question of whether we will know and experience his faithfulness either in blessing or cursing. But either way, verse 4, God is faithful. Then thirdly, Well, if God's righteousness is magnified through our unrighteousness, wouldn't it be wrong for him to judge us or inflict wrath upon us since we're actually magnifying him for being the faithful one? And isn't it wrong for him to inflict this? Because how then can it confirm his faithfulness? Notice Paul replies in verse 6, by no means, for then how could God judge the world? God's judge, we know he's judge, and his judgments are always appropriate, and they're always right. And then finally, last time we looked at the the final fool-developed objection. Well, if our living an unfaithful life, if our living a lie and unbelief highlights and draws attention to his truthfulness, faithfulness, and goodness, why should we be condemned? You see how foolish the argument here is? And in addition to that, they say, why not do evil so that good may come? Verse 8. If God is most greatly glorified through our evil and dispersing grace upon us, let's do more evil so that his grace may be more greatly magnified. That's like justifying Judas, right? Think about it. That's like justifying Judas because he fulfilled scripture and betraying Jesus. That's how foolish that argument is. As though God rejoices in Judas' disloyalty because Judas made the atonement possible. What does Paul say? You speak like a what? A fool. And then Paul's answer in verse 8, that is a self-refuting, self-condemning statement. That is a self-condemning way of thinking. And he concludes their condemnation is what? Just. So this is what's going on in the courtroom. Indicting mankind. This is the argument that man will come up with against God and his faithfulness. So, just as Paul went through a series of questions here in verses 1 through 8, providing an answer to each objection, he opens this next section of the epistle with another question. Verse 9. And here's the first point in the sermon. All of mankind stands condemned. (laughs) What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under what, beloved? Under sin. Same with the Christians of our day. Paul could ask this question. Is this reality of salvation that we rest in a result of us being better than anybody else? Answer, by no means. Absolutely not. So Paul's basic point is very clear, seen in the second phrase of verse 9, we have already charged both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Everyone, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, whether you're a high-rolling CEO or you're the janitor somewhere, everyone is guilty of sin. And not a single member, beloved, of Adam's ruined race is accepted by God. In other words, no one is off the hook with regard to sin. All men stand on equal ground, red and yellow, black and white, all are sinners in his sight. Amen? Equal ground. There's no one by nature who is free from blame. None whatsoever, Paul says, all are under sin. So what then does it mean to be under sin? Well, the most familiar use of the word sin means to miss the the mark, the mark of perfection. And in the ancient world, one of the first steps into manhood was learning how to pull back on a bow and release an arrow and hit a target. This brought me back this week to memories of junior high, where testosterone is just starting to develop. And you go out into gym class, and we had archery class in that day. And we were together with the girls, so you want to show off that you have some strength. So you pull back the bow, and there's the target, however many yards out it was. And you pull back that thing, and (laughs) it lands five feet in front of you. It's very humiliating. And, you know, the mark is established 20, 25 yards, 30 yards, 40 yards. And as you build strength, you, you attempt to hit a bullseye. But you miss. Well, God has a target. 
God has established a target, target that none can ever reach, and it's called perfection. Holy, sinless perfection. That's the mark. So then to take this a little further, he says all are under sin, which means to be under the guilt of sin. All are under the guilt. What did Jesus take on the cross? He bore our guilt. He bore our shame. He bore our sin. So to say that we're all under the guilt of sin is to say that we are objectively guilty. And that's very important for us to understand, beloved, because when we hear the word guilt, we often think subjectively. This is how I feel. I feel guilty. So when Paul speaks about guilt of sin, he's not merely pointing out a subjective feeling. He's pointing out an objective what? Reality. That you are objectively guilty before God. I mean, after all, there's many people who are guilty who don't what? Feel guilty. They've been turned over to debased mind. They don't even feel guilt before God anymore. They used to, but they have a calloused heart. So Paul says, objectively, all are guilty. Therefore, all deserve the judgment of a just God. Therefore, to be under sin is to be under the power of sin and its due penalty, the wrath of God. So all are under the penalty deserved because all are under the punitive measure of God's holiness. That's the mark. Perfect holiness. So here now, in this section, Paul moves into his closing argument in this great case. Paul's the master attorney. And here we see the summation of God's case against the human race. He brings forth now a strong concluding statement about the absolute sinfulness of all men everywhere. So he's argued from the evidence thus far of creation. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 and following. He's argued from the evidence of history. He's argued from the evidence of reason. He's argued from the, re- the, the, the evidence of conscience. And now, notice, he argues from the evidence of Scripture. Verses 10 to 18. The very word of God. So here we have the heathen. The hypocrite and the Hebrew each in turn have been arraigned in this argument and found guilty. So we see again that humanity at large is summoned to the bar of God to hear his indictment against all. You want to share the gospel with somebody, beloved? Take them to Romans. The people who think that they're good? Well, I'm a morally upright person. Take them to Romans. I'm a religious person. I've been going to church all my life. I've been partaking of the Lord's Supper. I've been baptized in the church. Mom and dad were Christian. Grandma and grandpappy were Christian. Dad was a deacon. Dad was an elder. You're guilty. That will not save you. Take them to Romans. Paul covers everybody. And in it, we see the universality of human sin. Note the repetition of Paul's words here. None. No one. No one. No one, all, everybody, all-inclusive, guilty. Who in their right mind could stand before a holy God and think that they're good enough to earn their way into heaven? And they miss and reject the glorious provision of righteousness, Jesus Christ, the gift of God in Christ, his only begotten son. Now, notice Paul does not mince words here. But nevertheless, at the same time, this is not a tirade of some fire and brimstone street preacher who takes delight in the idea of God's reigning judgment on the wicked. This is a man of love. This is a man who loves enough to define the condition of man with clarity. This is love. What doctor in his right mind comes to his patient who has cancer and says, hey, you look great. Looking good. Have a great day. See you next year, maybe. No. That's not love. That's a lie. Paul wants people to see themselves as they are. That is, as God sees them. He sees them from within, as we'll see in just a moment, so that they might respond in faith to the glorious gospel. Gospel means good news, that although you're guilty and all this bad news has been declared, there's a way to be made righteous. And that's where he's developing this, his case. 
to know the eternal blessings of God. So what he's doing now is he's tightening the noose. Tightening the noose, and there's no escape from the logic of Almighty God. Isn't this exciting? When you know where you're going, it's exciting. If you don't know where you're going, it's terrifying. And it should be, because it's meant to be. Notice, Paul in his argument now, by utilizing the word of God as an evidence against man, begins with the character of man. Verses 10 through 12. As it is written, God says, in other words, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even what? Not even one. Not even one. This is testimony to the doctrine of universal sinfulness. This is testimony to the doctrine of total what? Depravity. He includes here a a comprehensive list of 13 counts against men citing a string of Old Testament quotes. That's what's before us. And here in verse 10, we're introduced with the words, as it is written, a clear reference to Scripture. Stressing the universal reign of sin and the pervasive condition of human depravity. Which results in the universal condemnation of all mankind. So he begins now by exposing the inside of man, his character, and how it affects the tongue, and how it affects our feet, our actions, in other words. Okay, so notice, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands. He's quoting here passages from Ecclesiastes 7, Psalm 14, and Psalm 53. You, you just, just look at the little margin in your Bible, and it will lead you to those cross-references of Scripture. Now, many people, in an attempt to free themselves from guilt, begin to measure their goodness or their behavior by the curve of what? Culture. The curve of culture. Man tries himself by human standards. This is very typical of us before we come to Christ. Doing what is right in his own what? Eyes. You remember in the book of Judges, one of the darkest illustrations that comes from the days of the judges is that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Not that he was doing wrong, but what he was doing right in his eyes. And men doing what's right in their own eyes produced one of the darkest eras in Israel's history. Men today, they set the bar. They set the standard on the news. That's definitely wrong. And truth is relative, right? As I said a couple weeks ago, until you take what they own to possess it for yourself, and then they'll say that you're wrong. The curve of culture. But God does not try man by human standards. He does not try man by the curve of culture. He tries all men by his own standard, and that is absolute holy perfection. That's the mark that men miss. Therefore are under sin and guilt. So notice first he exposes the condition of man. It's made evident by the disposition of the heart. All he says are without righteousness. All he says are without understanding. They're without a true desire to worship God, without true goodness, all defined in verses 10 through 12. Now, any religious person, churchgoer, morally upright person, straight edgers, we call them today, they could say, I've never murdered anyone. I've never practiced or participated in the perversions listed in Romans chapter 1. I've never murdered anyone. I've never raped anyone, and I've never been guilty of any particular charge that even kind of shadows that kind of behavior. But it is, beloved, easy to feel a sense of satisfaction when you compare yourself to the guys on death row or down at the prison to the perverted. But go measure yourself against Jesus Christ and see how you do. Amen? That's the standard. Holy perfection in a human body. Now, if anyone has the goal to say, that applies to most but me. Paul says none. No one, 
not even one, exposing the nature of the heart which stands guilty before God. You see, beloved, the damage wrought by sin runs deep within every man and woman. Deep. Everybody knows who they really are when no one else is around. Let's face it. Amen? Everybody knows what they are. So Paul is revealing what's deep within. Man's imaginations, women's imaginations, are oftentimes filthy, twisted, and devious. His memories betray him. His presumption of things, of God, of others, are most frequently false. And his conclusions are often wrong. He says no one understands, which means this. Man does not understand how repulsive his sin is before a holy and righteous God. Masterful argumentation here, amen? He's breaking this down. He says, look, no one seeks for God. Now, what do people think in our day? No one seeks for God. Well, to dispute this, many say, look at all the temples around the world. Look at all the religious systems in the world. There must be some stirring within them to desire God. They must be God's seekers. They're just on the wrong path. Give them a break. No, no one seeks for God. They're making their own gods. Scripture's clear on this. What they're truly doing is defined in 1 Corinthians 10.20. The things that pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. Other religious systems, other than the one true faith in Jesus Christ, he said, is a sacrifice to demons. 2 Corinthians 4.3, behind the world's supposed beliefs is the God of this world, otherwise known as the devil, Satan. So Jesus made it clear when he spoke to Nicodemus, John chapter 3, that religion apart from regeneration is vain. Unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom. He cannot understand the things of God. He has no desire for the things of God. It takes the act of God to come upon the sinner to cause him to desire the one true God. That's grace. That's unmerited favor. In John 6, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless what? Unless the Father draw him, which means to drag him. Like you draw up a bucket of water from a well. You don't woo the water up. You don't say, Come to me, water. You throw the bucket down and you pull it up. So sinful mankind as a whole is unresponsive to God, so unresponsive that it takes the initiative of God to save them. Ephesians 2, you were dead in trespasses and sins. What can a dead man do? Dead man can do nothing. But by grace through faith, and even faith, verses 8 and 9, is a gift of God that enables one to believe. So it can truly be said that natural man has no desire to seek after God. No one naturally and purely wants to worship God. No one naturally wants to long for his majestic, majestic glory to be put on display. Verse 12, all have turned aside, notice. They've become worthless. No one does good, not one. This means that they've gone off the path. They've turned around and they departed. Their inward lust, their inward desires cause them to run off the path of truth. That's what it means. It's the idea of a soldier who deserts his fellow soldiers. He departs. He goes AWOL in the midst of battle. The whole human race has deserted the path of truth. Isaiah 53, 6, we've gone astray. Every man has turned to his own way. You see, beloved? The words of Paul absolutely destroy all of man's imagined goodness in and of himself. This is how desperate we are for a righteousness that comes from outside of us, the gospel. He said they become worthless together, collectively, no exceptions, worthless. So what is God's assessment of mankind thus far? unprofitable. Does, do his good, good deeds outweigh his bad, beloved? No, unprofitable. He's consumed by the guilt of sin. The entire human race has been arraigned here as unrighteous, unreasonable, unresponsive, and unrepentant. Bad news, yeah? 
hold on. Good news is coming next week. This is the character. This is the disposition of the natural man, which, in, which affects the entire being. And he begins inside with character. Then he moves to the mouth. Notice verses 13 and 14. Their throat, it's an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. So he moves from the heart, verses 10 to 12, to the tongue, to the speech, and he declares, your speech condemns you. Our speech before God condemns us. He quotes the Psalms here again, Psalm 5, Psalm 140, Psalm 10. All have to do with sins of the tongue. Here's an evidence, he said. Here's Paul in the courtroom bringing evidence, presenting evidence here, indicting man. So he compares the mouth, notice, first with the gross stench of a corpse drifting from an open grave. What a picture. Okay, this is the inspired word of God, beloved. These aren't my ideas. This is the idea of the stench of a corrupt heart that is released through the unkind, untrue, and envious words of mankind. So as the tongue transmits the deception here within our own hearts, Towards others, we see in verse 13, they use their tongue to deceive. Are you a parent here? You have children. It doesn't matter how old they are. It has been said, well said, that no one has to send their child to lying school. Right? You don't have to teach a kid how to lie. You didn't, I didn't have to be taught how to lie. I did very well on my own. Very well. Sooner after they learn to speak, inherently they know how to lie. It's natural for us, if we're honest. You can see the reality of deception in any child. You see their unbridled heart expose an unbridled tongue. They only learn how to master it over time, as we all do. We shade the truth here and here, here and there. James 3, verse 6, equates the tongue to a fire. Notice, a world of unrighteousness, and no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly what? Poison. You feel good in and of yourself, beloved, this morning? You see your desperate need for the Savior who called you by name? Aren't you glad it's his righteousness that has been placed upon your account? That you're not required to stand with your own righteousness because you have none. Notice the venom of asps is under their lips. There's another image. I was watching Discovery Channel this week, and they had this deadly serpent known as a cobra. And they, if you fold back their upper jaw, their, their fangs are kind of folded back under the jaw. And when they open that mouth and they rear back, those fangs pop out, those hollow little fangs, and they just snap forward and release their venom, and they kill people. Man, underneath the veneer of these lips, has a tongue filled with venom. That's the picture. You know, Jesus warned in Matthew chapter 12, On the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Why? Because every person, his tongue reveals the nature of his heart, the condition of his heart. They're unrighteous. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, cited from Psalm 10. Curses literally means to speak evil against someone. This is like the gossip or the slanderer. Bitterness is is wicked resulting in vile speech against not only man, but also God. Paul says, listen to your speech. It is but one evidence that there's a problem deep within. So now he moves from the tongue. He begins with inside the character, manifest by way of the tongue, and now man's condemned actions. Notice, he goes from the heart to the tongue to the feet. Verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood, In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace, they have not known. 
You know the National Center for the Victims of Crime reports one murder, in, this is in America, every 32 minutes. One violent crime every six seconds. One robbery every 55 seconds. One assault every seven seconds. One theft every two seconds. One burglary every 10 seconds. One rape or sexual assault every two minutes. Our condition is manifest in our actions. 5.7 million Jews in World War II were cruelly tortured and murdered in Nazi-dominated Europe. And I'll spare you all the gory details, beloved, but those crimes were committed and or overlooked by one of the most enlightened, cultured, and advanced nations in all of Europe during that time. Man has never been advanced when it comes to holy morality. Quite simply, the deeds we do flow from the what, Jesus said? The heart. Matthew 15, Jesus, out of the heart proceed evil thoughts. Out of the heart proceed murders and adulteries and fornication and thefts and false witness and blasphemies. Their feet, therefore, are swift to shed blood. Now, he's not saying here that everyone commits murder, literally, amen? It's, it's really easy for us to be smug and say, well, I've never done anything close to that. And, you know, the guys in prison, they do deserve to be there. And, yes, they do. Yes, they do. But even so, but by the grace of God, there go I. So the human heart, Jesus said, is the cause for every imaginable crime. Jesus traced adultery to the lustful look. He traced murder to the angry and bitter thought. And it's only by the restraining grace of God that prevents the full potential of this kind of manifestation of the heart. Where do you want to take your friends who think they're good? Take them to Romans. If you sit here today and you think you're good enough, immerse yourself in the first three chapters of Romans. And then come back next week to hear the glories of grace provided you if you believe. So what's the ultimate cause of this kind of behavior? Notice verse 18. Quite simply, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Citing Psalm 36. So the Bible teaches us that the beginning of knowledge is what? It's the fear of the Lord. There's no fear of God before them. But this is the beginning of wisdom. People left to themselves, they do not fear God. They do not honor God, and in no way are they even thinking about glorifying God. So being a God-fearer in Scripture is synonymous with being a true believer. Now, this isn't a fear of panic, beloved, or trepidation. This is reverential awe that he's holy. He's redeemed me. He lowered himself to save my wretched soul. He lowered himself, condescended to send his son in a human body to uphold that law and then to lay down his life as the sacrifice to bear what? The wrath of the Father. That's love. That's gospel. Here now Paul provides a concluding word in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be what? Stop. Shut. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Nobody. They don't have a standing chance. So in view of mankind's criminal heart, Paul hammers home to the conscience man's blame for his own condition. Man's blame for his condition and God's sentence of guilt against him. The only one to blame is me. I am to blame. So he brings to bear God's law now. This is his closing argument. So remember, Paul's literary style comes in the form of this legal argument. Verse 9, all are brought and arraigned as sinners. All belong to the same sin-cursed family. 
Verse 10 through 18 is a spiritual indictment of all mankind. Heart, tongue, and actions are the evidence that testify against them. Verses 19 to 20 is the verdict. Guilty. Guilty. God's holy law is the standard, and there's no defense. Defense. Rest is case because they have nothing to say. Nothing to say. Every mouth, verse 19, is stopped and the whole world is held accountable. So anyone who dares to argue their case at last, their mouths will be stopped at the great white throne judgment where each one will be judged for what he or she has done and then, as a result, cast into the lake of fire. So as I close, beloved friends, those of you who are here today who've never embraced Jesus Christ personally, I'm not talking about going to church all your life. I'm not talking about all the signs of baptism or the Lord's Supper that you've participated in. If you've never embraced Christ by faith, independent of your parents, independent of your heritage, this kind of condemnation you will face. But this kind of condemnation can only be answered by the Savior, Jesus Christ. So man has been found guilty. He's led back to his cell as he awaits and sits on death row. And Donald Gray Barnhouse wrote this, quote, What are the thoughts of a criminal who's been found guilty and who goes back to his cell to await the hour when he shall be sentenced? Does there there still linger in his brain the fevered hope that a miracle might intervene and come between him and the just retribution which his deeds have earned for him, end quote. So what should be the response to Paul's devastating verdict here of sin and guilt? Hopefully not. What John Stott said a number of years ago, to talk instead for the need of self-esteem. That's what we hear in our day, in our culture. Self-esteem for guilt. Or to change the subject and blame behavior on our genes or our nurturing or our culture. But rather, by accepting the divine diagnosis of our condition. By accepting responsibility for it. And only then shall we be ready for the merciful words of verse 21. Notice what they are and we're going to look at them next time. But now. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Thank you, Jesus is right. And this is where Paul begins to explain how God has intervened through Christ and his cross for salvation. So man, beloved, is not only convicted by the law, he's condemned by the law, and he's found guilty, revealing that man is truly helpless in his condition and truly helpless and hopeless to his case. But no one has to wait until the day of the great white throne judgment to find out where they stand, where you will stand in judgment. You can know today. Because John 3.18 says this, All whose faith and trust are not in Christ alone are condemned, what? Already. Mankind's already condemned. Anyone who has not immersed themselves by faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. So God's verdict at the great white throne will simply confirm man's condition defined here in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Romans. He breaks it down, doesn't he? Paul breaks this down. Man's condition is helpless. And if man is to be saved, God must save him. God must save him. And that is Paul's next great theme. So, for those of us who are believers here today, beloved, there are many applications for us here. First and foremost, walk out with this. We are reminded what we have been saved from. And we are reminded what we truly are apart from Christ. This is what we are apart from Christ. And also, we're reminded how easily and subtly we can be dragged back into old patterns of thinking, old patterns of speaking, old patterns of behaving, even as a renewed people of Jesus Christ. 
So this word is for all of us this morning. Amen? His living and active word establishes why we need the good news of Jesus Christ. And that is, the good news is that there is a righteousness that reconciles you to God that comes from outside of you. It comes from God. You don't create it. You don't contribute to it. It's not you and God. All you do is receive it. You receive it by faith. You rest in it and you walk in it by faith. And that is the greatest news ever declared. And then we transition into righteousness by imputation. Righteousness from Christ placed upon your account for those who believe. Then you come to realize that your sin and your vileness was imputed to him on the cross. That's what's known as the great exchange. And you stand righteous because of him and only him. Because outside of him, you're vile and you are wretched. Outside of him, the guy speaking to you is vile and wretched. But by the grace of God, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. So may God enable you this morning to cherish and embrace the good news of Jesus Christ as we come to the Lord's table together. Amen? Let's pray as we continue to worship. Our Lord and our God, we do thank you for the gracious, gracious goodness provided us through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that Scripture hides nothing, that your word is not in any way, does it any way fail to communicate man's true condition outside of your grace and mercy. Thank you for the gift that you have granted us through faith in Christ, your Son. And if there is anyone here, Lord, this morning who comes in depending on anything but Christ alone, I pray that your spirit would move in a way that would open their minds to see what they really are in and of themselves and that they need a righteousness that is foreign to them, that comes from outside, granted to them by faith and the grace that you provide alone through Jesus, your Son, our Savior. It's in his name we pray.